0: Clearly, Casey, a podcast by the National Keratoconus Foundation, featuring information about life with keratoconus. I'm your host, Dr. Melissa Barnett. Today we are going to discuss the future of cross linking. I am thrilled to introduce you to Dr. Sam Lee, a cornea specialist in private practice in Sacramento, California, who I've known for almost 15 years. He did his residency at UC Davis and his cornea fellowship at UIC in Chicago. He has been in private practice now for over 10 years. Welcome, Sam.
1: Thanks, Melissa, it's really nice to see you.
0: Nice to see you too. Today we're gonna talk about cross-linking. So please share the current FDA protocol that was approved in 2016 for corneal collagen cross-linking.
1: Absolutely, I've been actively cross-linking since about 2016. We currently use the glucose I-Link, and this is the FDA-approved EPI-OFF Dresden Protocol collagen cross unit. Essentially what we're doing is we are removing and debriding the epithelium, and then we are soaking the cornea for 30 minutes in riboflavin, and then we're using UVA and lighting up the cornea for 30 minutes while we're actively putting drops in. This is the Dresden Protocol, which has been going on since the early 2000s, and actually the results are quite good. It it was based on results from animal studies done all the way back since the 90s. This is the original cross-licking treatment that was studied in Germany, and this is what's found to be very effective in halting or slowing down the progression of progressive keratoconus. Excellent.
0: I remember when crosslinking was approved in 2016. I was so excited because I had read the studies from all over the world that it had been done for many, many years prior to that.
1: Absolutely. So it's funny that it seems relatively new to us here in the U.S., but it's been actually going on outside the U.S. for quite a few years. We just gained, like you said, FDA approval around 2016, and that's when I started actively crosslinking patients Of course, there were challenges in the early stages of cross-thinking because of lack of insurance coverage, and that was a big, big hurdle for a lot of us in practice that wanted to offer our uh, progressive keratoconic patients the newest treatment available options for them to uh, halt their progression, but to have those hurdles with a very expensive kind of treatment option was challenging at the time.
0: Yes, and I found that coverage has gotten much better. Have you found the same?
1: Yes, absolutely. So currently, pretty much all commercial plans are covering collagen crosslinking. The federal and the state plans are still not covering Medicaid, Medi-Cal plans here in California, and Medicare. Of course, our Medicare patients are generally 65 and older, which is not necessarily the age range for folks that have progressive keratoconus. So Medicare CMS has largely stayed out of insurance coverage for cross-linking. Currently, the Medi-Cal, at least here in California, the Medicaid programs is currently not covering collagen cross-linking. That is still a battle that we're trying to fight to gain coverage for our, our most vulnerable patients with progressive keratoconus.
0: Well, thank you for fighting the battle because all of those patients really deserve uh, to get cross-linking as well
1: definitely so when i talk to a new patient with keratoconus obviously there's been tr- dramatic changes in the way that we handle keratoconic patients with advances in scleral lenses and of course you've taken care of a lot of my patients with needs such as that but really the foundational treatment which i talk to to all my progressive patients is that they really have to halt the progression of the disease because even though their vision still may be quite good and able to gain a good spectacle visual acuity They may lose their vision if they leave it untreated. So it's kind of an interesting conversation to have with folks, especially for those with very early disease. The the traditional mentality has always been basically wait until they can't see anymore and then do a corneal transplant on them. That's certainly not the way we treat keratoconus in 2023. Now we try to actively cross-link them as early as possible when there's any evidence of progression because uh, we just don't want them to lose any of that vision.
0: That's exactly right. And are there any age restrictions as far as cross-linking at this time?
1: You know, my understanding is that the FDA protocol is 12 and above. I have actually treated a patient as young as 12. Younger than that, I have sent a few patients for general anesthesia cross-linking to universities just because they weren't able to cooperate with the Epiof protocol, the Dresden protocol. But essentially, the earlier, the better in in almost all circumstances. But as you can understand, with the Dresden protocol, we are debriding the central 9 millimeters of epithelium. And doing that in the office, which is where the most of us will do these procedures, can be challenging depending on patient cooperation. So that is one of the limitations of our current techniques with crosslinking. With the FDA approval of epi-off crosslinking, Being able to treat patients, for example, with Down syndrome or a a young patient, we're still having to do other methods like general anesthesia uh, treatments, which I currently don't have access to in my private practice. But um, looking towards the future, I'm hopeful that with less invasive uh, ways to cross-link patients that we'll be um, able to expand the scope of patients that we're able to treat.
0: Well, that's a perfect segue into my next question. And looking at the future, can you please explain the difference between transepithelial or epi-on crosslinking and epi-off crosslinking?
1: Yes. So epi-off crosslinking, which is epithelium-off, that's basically what it stands for. And transepithelial is essentially synonymous with epithelial-on. With epithelial-off crosslinking, the first step of the procedure is that we remove the central nine millimeters of the first layer of the cornea. For those listeners that don't know, the cornea has five layers to it. And essentially, the meat of the cornea, the third layer is called the stroma. And the stroma is what we're actively trying to cross-link, and that's made up of the parallel collagen fibrils. So in order to cross-link the stroma, what we're doing with our epithelial off-cross-linking is we're removing the first layer, the epithelium, which is kind of the skin of the cornea, and the point of doing that is that we can then soak the cornea in riboflavin, which is vitamin B2, and with drops and essentially hope that it then soaks into this cornea in a homogenous fashion and then goes deep enough that we're getting an effect as a photosensitizing photosensit- agent. And then when we're activating the riboflavin with the calibrated UVA light, what we're then doing is creating a kind of an oxygenation state where we're creating Free radicals and creating bonds between the collagen fibrils, which is the cross linking formation. Now, in terms of epithelial on or transepithelial cross linking, we're foregoing that first step of epithelial debridement. That's very enticing for a corneal surgeon like myself because. It is challenging, especially in young people, when you're degrading epithelium. It does expose them to a few risks, number one being the risk of infection. Anytime you have an epithelial defect, there is a remote risk of infection, although most of us or all of us are treating with um, prophylactic antibiotic eye drops while the epithelial defect is in place. And most of us are also placing a bandage contact lens on the eye to help with healing and with comfort. And so there is a theoretical risk of epithelial defect. When there is an epithelial defect, there's a risk for development of haze. And there's also some cases where uh, a patient that has ocular surface disease, dry eye, blepharitis, they can develop sterile infiltrates and scars on the cornea uh, from epithelial off cross-linking. So Epithelial on cross-linking is where you don't degrade the epithelium. It's been looked at multiple ways. The question, of course, is: okay, if you have the epithelium intact, how can you ensure that you're penetrating deep into the stroma with the riboflavin? It's been looked at a numerous ways, and so traditionally scientists would just put the riboflavin drops directly on the epithelium, and then did the cross-linking treatment. It wasn't found to be as effective. method of crossing compared to epithelial off. So now what scientists throughout the world are doing are finding new ways, innovative ways to increase the ability for the riboflavin to penetrate more deeply, but also to increase the rate at which the actual crosslinking is being done because you need a few different ingredients. Not only do you need the riboflavin soaked into the corneal stroma, you do need oxygen as well. And so there's been numerous things tried, including iontrophoresis, which is basically applying an electrical current to try to improve penetration of the riboflavin to the corneal stroma, increasing oxygenation locally into the region, the area of cross-sinking, and then more recently looking at ways to pulse the UV light so that the UV light isn't just a constant UV light, so that there's a break in the UV light to allow oxygen to come back into the local region. So multiple ways, people have also looked, of course, at applying drops increase that break down the tight junctions in the epithelium so that the drug has better penetration deeper. There's been numerous ways that it's been looked at, but essentially the theoretical outcome of doing epithelial arm is that you can have a less invasive procedure. And the patient would have less discomfort and pain, which is very common with epithelial off-crosslinking, and then lead to less issues like scar formation, potentially less haze, and a quicker visual recovery.
0: Well, excellent. I think you answered all my questions in that in that one, but I, I have one more. What about the rate of infection? Is there any difference in the incidence of infections with epi-on and epi-off cross-linking?
1: Currently, there are no head-to-head results looking at infection rates between the two. Uh, For those of us that do significant amount of collagen cross-linking, personally, in our practice, we do around six epi-off cross-linking per week. I really actually haven't had anyone develop a corneal infection after collagen cross-linking. We've cross-linked probably over 500 plus eyes. Now, having said that, there's always a theoretical risk. Young people generally heal their epithelium very quickly, and we put them on a relatively broad spectrum antibiotic while they have the bandage lens and while they have an epithelial defect in place. But there is a rate of some folks that will develop some sterile infiltrates and actually non-infectious infiltrates in their cornea like a really robust inflammatory reaction to um, just everything, including the epithelial debridement and the collagen cross-thinking. So um, I haven't had any kind of personal experience yet doing any significant amount of epion treatments, but in the papers, um, there does appear to be kind of a trend in surgeons mentioning that the lower infection rate is one of the reasons that epion cross-thinking is very attractive for us as surgeons. Having said that, we most of the protocols for EpiOn are still utilizing antibiotic drops and a bandage contact lens currently. But what will happen in the future just depends on what ends up getting approved and, and whatnot. But currently, uh, most of the EpiOn treatments, at least uh, that I've been aware of, have still involved uh, a bandage lens.
0: I'm thinking this would be such a great opportunity for a drug delivery contact lens after cross-linking.
1: Right. Oh, absolutely. I think this is such a new field. There's a lot of things to consider when it comes to new novel ways to deliver drugs onto the ocular surface. You're well aware of the scleral lens bowl as a very potent way to deliver drug to the anterior segment and potentially even more. But certainly this population of patients, you know, historically we've had them wait to get RGP hybrid scleral lenses until they're uh, well healed from their collagen cross-thinking. But Uh, I can certainly see that there would be an opportunity um, in the early stages uh, post-operatively where they can have a drug delivery type device that may aid in their recovery.
0: Yes, so uh, both scleral and potentially soft in the future. Not yet approved, but there's only one soft lens for anti-allergy FDA approved at this time. But just think of all the potential indications there. So Sam, is it possible to... Do cross linking again once cross linking has been done?
1: Yes, so that's a great question. That's a question that I get asked frequently from my patients. Um, it definitely is a possibility that an eye can be cross linked again. Um, I, I really treat my cross linking patients as if they're continuous keratoconic patients. I still see them frequently and I still obtain corneal tomography routinely and compare it pre op and post op to make sure that I'm not seeing any. Uh, real progression postoperatively, I would say that based on the study results, we're looking at approximately a one to five percent kind of breakthrough rate of progression after epi-off cross-linking. Um, I might say that's pretty accurate of what I'm seeing in my clinical results. So I've had to treat, retreat one patient, uh, but the patient had received an epi-on treatment outside the U.S., and I retreated with an epi-off treatment, and this was a, a post-LASIK ectasia patient. So it's still relatively rare, but definitely still um, possible to retreat uh, with crosslinking if needed. It's going to be really interesting um, as we move forward, and eventually um, some of these companies will gain FDA approval for epi-on crosslinking to see where things go with first-line therapy, Will EpiOff just disappear? I don't think so. I think EpiOff cross will will still be around. I think that we'll kind of have to figure out as a community altogether who we're going to be treating EpiOn, who we're going to be treating EpiOff. Some people are saying, "Well, we'll just reserve our EpiOn for those who are sub four hundred micron after epithelial removal, because the Dresden protocol currently mandates a four hundred micron cornea before we begin the crossing UVA treatment." From a standpoint of epi-on treatment and, and being potentially being a first-line therapy, I think that Europe has moved in that direction, and I suspect that as we gain FDA approval here in the U.S., we'll probably see a similar type of trend where the less invasive option, the one that's shorter, like generally the epi-on treatments are probably going to be about half the time frame in terms of how long the procedure takes. And with it being a more comfortable, less invasive procedure, I, I'm thinking that surgeons and patients will gravitate more towards epi-on initially, and then maybe potentially if there's a breakthrough, potentially they can get an epi-off procedure. Those are still questions that are left unanswered, and we'll have to figure those out as time goes on.
0: Those are great questions and such an exciting time in cross-linking and really beneficial for everyone with keratoconus, that we can cross-link early, really stabilize that cornea, and then rehabilitate with either specialty contact lenses or glasses or soft contact lenses. We have all these options. Well, thank you so much, Sam, for all this valuable information about cross-linking. And thank you all for joining us on the Clearly KC podcast. Please listen to all of the episodes of the Clearly KC podcast on Podbean, or your favorite podcast app, to subscribe and get future episodes. For now, I am Dr. Melissa Barnett, and please join us next time on Clearly KC. Thank you, Sam.
1: Thanks, Melissa.